This morning, I have the pleasure and the honor of bringing the word, and I'm so excited about what we're going to be talking about this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to Daniel chapter 4, and that's where we're going to be for this morning, Daniel chapter 4. And we're going to be beginning and reading verses 1 through 3. So let you open up to there real quick. It says in Daniel chapter 4, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of all the people, nations, and populations of all languages who live in all the earth, may your peace be great. I am pleased to declare the signs and miracles that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his miracles. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. Let's pray. Father God, we're so thankful for your word, O oh God. I pray, Lord God, as I bring the word tonight, that you will give me the words, Lord God, and the power of your spirit to deliver the word that you would have your people here, O oh God. And I pray that you would give your people listening ears, O oh God, so that they can be equipped, Lord God, for standing firm in Babylon, O oh God. We love you. We thank you. I pray that you'll give us a good, good word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you didn't know, if you haven't been here the past few weeks, we have been going through a series through the book of Daniel. Summer series, Standing Firm in Babylon, to so the book of Daniel. And Pastor Greg has done an amazing job the previous couple weeks telling us about the story of the Hebrew Israelites going to Israel uh, telling the story of Daniel interpreting the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego last week. And this week, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 4, which is a very particular chapter, but it's very important to understand why this chapter is different from all the other chapters we've read before this. Before, we were reading from the perspective of Daniel, or the perspective of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But as we just read, this chapter does not come from the perspective of one of the Hebrew Israelites. It comes from the perspective of Nebuchadnezzar, which is very interesting. We've read about him in the past few weeks and how he's a wicked man, a wicked king, who, who when he had a dream that troubled him, he decided to kill the people who didn't know the dream. And he decided to throw the Israelites in a fiery furnace if they didn't worship him. So what we know of Nebuchadnezzar is he's a pretty bad dude who does pretty bad things to God's people, including destroying Jerusalem. So he's a pretty wild character in the Bible. But here he is in chapter 4, as we just read, he is declaring the great signs, and the mighty miracles of God. Why is this? Well, we're going to read in chapter 4 here how, how even a pagan wicked king, how a tyrant, how someone who's steeped in sin, even they are not forsaken by the God of Israel. Amen? Amen. With that in mind, I want us to ask this question in light of all this information. What miracle of God is so profound that it causes the wicked to submit? What miracle of God is so profound that it causes the wicked to submit? 
namely Nebuchadnezzar in this chapter. So let's go ahead and read this story. So that first few verses we read, verses 1 through 3, we know that this is through the perspective of Nebuchadnezzar, and he's giving a decree, an edict, that would likely go out to his people so that they would know his story. They would know how he experienced the Most High God. They would know that there is a Most High God above him, a king that is even above him. So we find out why this is so in the following verses. In Daniel chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, we read, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. Let's stop there for one moment. So we just talked for a moment about who Nebuchadnezzar was. He was the king of Babylon. Now Babylon at the time was the superpower. They were the empire. They conquered most of the known world. They were the people to be in that day. And Nebuchadnezzar was the most successful king of the most successful, successful empire of this time. And, you know, if you're in that position, you probably feel pretty good about yourself. You know, you've, you've got the kingdom, you've, you've beat everyone that can be beat, no one's challenging you, you made a giant statue of yourself, this dude Daniel's telling you you're this golden head on a statue, you're probably feeling pretty good about yourself, probably feeling up to snuff and everything. But we need to recognize that when Nebuchadnezzar was proudest and at ease in his pride is when God decided to shake him. And this is something we have to understand, that we are most self-destructive in these own season of our own lives, when we are at ease in our own pride. God has not established us for a life of ease. Yes, he gives us peace. Yes, he gives us provision, but it's not so we can sit around and feel good about ourselves. It's to stir us and, and move us into action on behalf of him and, and everything he's asked us to do. No, there is no time where we are further from the will of God than when we are comfortable and we are at ease, especially when we know we are in sin. So we need to recognize that Nebuchadnezzar's in this season of feeling like he's done it all. Now, this chapter 4 is the last chapter where we see Nebuchadnezzar. After this, Babylonia gets wiped out by the Persian Empire. The Persians take over. So this is the height of Nebuchadnezzar's power. He is, there's no time where he's mightier. He is the mightiest king. He's, he's, it says that he's flourishing. That word flourishing isn't just like he's doing well. No, he's like, like boasting in how well he's doing. He's, like we read uh, a, a, last week was that he's building statues, forcing people to worship them. He's, he's, he's a very prideful man. He has a lot of things going for him at this point. And when he thinks he's got it all figured out is when God decides to grab him and shake him a little bit. He gives him a dream. He gives him a vision while he's sleeping that makes him fearful and, and alarms him. And we're going to read through this dream real quick, and it's, it's a little long, so bear with me, but we're in church. We're going to read the Bible. So we're going to read about this dream in chapter 4, verses 10 through 17, and it goes as follows. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the middle of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its heights reached the sky. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. 
Its foliage was beautiful and its fruits abundant. And in it was food for all. The animals of the field found shade under it and the birds of the skies lived in its branches. And all the living creatures fed from it. I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted and spoke as follows. Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Shake off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Let, yet leave the stump with its root in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the animals in the grass of the earth. Let his mind change from that of a human and let an animal's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by decree of the angelic watcher, and the decision is the command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and he grants it to whomever he wishes, and sets, it, sets over it the lowest of people. So, Nebuchadnezzar sees this vision. There's a tree. A giant tree that so big that everybody on earth can see this tree. And it's so high that it fills the sky. It's, its foliage fills the skies. And all the animals live under this tree. All the, all the birds live in the foliage. And as I said, there, there's fruit for everyone. And then all of a sudden, an angel comes out of nowhere and just commands that the tree be chopped down and it falls. And there's all this talk of losing its mind to become an animal's mind and the rule of the Most High God. And, and Nebuchadnezzar, you can imagine, I mean, if I had a dream like this, I'd be pretty concerned too. I'd be wondering, what did I eat last night? Like, this is a crazy dream he's having, and it makes him afraid and fearful. And Nebuchadnezzar, he does what he always does when he has these dreams. He calls his wise men, he calls the magicians, he calls the astrologers, he calls the Chaldeans, brings them into his court. And this time he doesn't kill them if they get it wrong. I think he's been sanctified a little bit, I hope. But, but he doesn't get the answer he wants from these people. As we see in the past, they can't give him the answer that the Most High God has for him. So he calls up his boy, Daniel. And Daniel rolls in and he tells him the dream and we know Daniel. He knows the answer. He's going to have the answer. I like to believe that Nebuchadnezzar knew, knew what the dream meant and knew that Daniel knew what the dream meant but was hoping somebody else would give him a different answer because he didn't like what the dream meant. But we know that when God speaks, he doesn't always give us the truth we want to hear. He gives us the truth. So Daniel comes in and gives him the interpretation, but we read that Daniel's hesitant to give this interpretation because it is such a heavy message for the king of Babylon. So we read in Daniel chapter 4, verses 20 to 22, what the interpretation of the dream is. Daniel says, The tree that you, Nebuchadnezzar, saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached the sky and was visible to the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and whose branches the birds of the sky lodge. It is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. Okay, so in case you missed it in this passage, this tree is Nebuchadnezzar. It is the king, which, you know, the king probably feels 
you know, good and bad about, you know, the biggest, mightiest, strongest tree. It, it has fruit for everyone. Everyone can live in its foliage. It's, it's the mightiest. It's the greatest. But Nebuchadnezzar knows what's to come. The, the tree is seen by the whole earth, and, and the tree reaches all the way to the heavens, but it will be cut down by the king of heaven. Although Nebuchadnezzar is the mightiest ruler of the mightiest nation, there is someone mightier. Although he has become king of the world, there is a king in heaven who is sovereign over even him. And we read further in Daniel chapter 4, more of this interpretation in verse 24 and 25. This is the interpretation, O king. And this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you, I'm reading the wrong translation here, but you guys can follow along. This is the interpretation, okay, and this is the decree of the Most High, uh, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you be driven away from mankind in your dwelling place with the beasts of the field, and you be given grass to eat like cattle, and be drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over to you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and you bestow it on whoever he wishes. So this prophecy, now think about this. The man who threw Daniel's boys into the fiery furnace, the man who was going to chop the heads of all the wise men who wouldn't give him the answer, he's telling this king, king, you are going to lose your kingdom. You, not only are going to lose your kingdom, but you're going to be driven into madness. You're going to be given the mind of an animal. You're going to lose all that, 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 that pomp. You're going to lose all the pleasures and, and, and the luxuries you have, and you're going to eat food like cattle do in the fields. This will continue, the decree says. This will continue until Seven times have, have gone by, and, and we don't know exactly what that means. The seven times doesn't say days, years, weeks. We're not sure how long that time period is. But until that time is done, Nebuchadnezzar will act like a beast in the wild. There's two important things, though, I want us to recognize uh, in this passage. First is the dew of heaven. Why does Daniel and, and make it a point, why does God make it a point in the dream to declare that he will uh, drink the, the dew of the heaven, that it will be sustained by the dew of the heaven? Well, remember what we're talking, we're talking about a tree here. What does a tree need to live? Water. They need water to live. And, and for a tree to grow that big and that mighty, it probably needs a lot of watering, a lot of feed. I'm not a, a gardener by any means, but I'm just assuming, that, you know, any people plant trees here? Nobody great, so I'm in great company here. You guys don't know either. So I'm assuming a tree to get this big is going to need a lot of time, a lot of attention, a lot of water, a lot of feed, whatever they need, fertilizing, everything. But all this tree will now receive is the dew of heaven, the morning dew, the wetness you find on the grass in the morning, stuff that gets on your feet when you're walking out to your car. That is all the sustaining that that tree will get once it is cut down. It can and it will be sustained by the same sustenance that all the other plants get. He's going to lose all the luxury, all the pomp, all the pleasures, and he's just going to have what everybody else has, what all 
the poor people of Babylon have, what all the captives have of Babylon, just the dew of heaven. He's going to lose all of his luxuries. The second thing I want to point out is the seven periods of time. Now, there's a lot of different interpretations of what this means, the seven periods of time. Is it seven years? Is it seven months? Is it seven weeks? What, what is this? Why is it so important that Daniel points out that there is seven periods of times? Well, if you read the Bible, you'll see the number seven occurring pretty often. And seven usually represents the number of completion. Creation was completed in seven days. We, we're only done forgiving somebody when we forgive them 70 times, seven times. Seven is the number of completion. So it's possible that this seven isn't a literal, in seven years you're going to be okay, Nebuchadnezzar. It could mean, no, you're going to be stuck in the wild until my work is complete in your life. This period is going to last as long until what I need to do is complete in your life. Until Nebuchadnezzar gets the message, he will be stuck in this humiliation. Nebuchadnezzar, think about it. Daniel just prophesied that he's the golden head of the statue. This golden head of the statue now will be cut down, cast into the wilderness with the mind of an animal, fed by the dew of heaven, acting like an animal, a beast of the fields. He will no longer be any better. He will no longer be any better than the cattle of his fields. He will no longer eat the delicacies that he tried to subdue the Hebrews with in chapter one. He will no longer receive the worship that he, he killed people for in Daniel chapter three. He'll no longer have his wise men and his Chaldeans and his magicians that come to him when he has dreams that, that trouble him. No, he will be completely humiliated. God can and will humble anyone he pleases. I have a, a quick story. There was one time um, when I was first starting off in youth ministry, which is like last week, I guess. But when I was first starting off in youth ministry, I went to a graduation party. And at this graduation party, um, you know, you do what you do at graduation parties. You eat food, you eat cake, you have a good time. And, you know, there's some, you know youth there, it's a graduation party, and getting a little rowdy, you know, the, the person who was graduating, they were a wrestler, so everyone wanted to wrestle them, and everyone's wrestling and everything, and I'm like, look at these, look at these youth, look at them, I could beat them up, you know, so I was like, you know, I'll throw my hat in the ring, I'll, 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 I'll wrestle too, so um, my dear friend Carlo, Carlos Montanez, who's in the back on the camera, Carlos Montanez, if you don't know, he's a big kid, you know, I wouldn't say he's the strongest, nor the brightest, but he's a big kid. No, we love Carlos. We love Carlos very much. We love him very, very much. But Carlos, he's, I didn't give him, you know, the, you know, the credit he's due. So I decided, Carlos, let's wrestle. So, you know, I'm full on cake. I'm fulled up on junk food from this barbecue, this graduation party. And I start wrestling Carlos. And I was not ready for just how big this kid is. And then he just lays on top of me. Not only that, I get up. After that fight, I tap out. I'm like, Carlos, 
Yuan, I can't do this. I, I, I feel humiliated. I get up, and all of a sudden, I start feeling the cake. I start feeling the barbecue. I walk up to the side, and I'll let you figure out what happens from there. But it was completely humiliating. Listen, I was just starting off in youth ministry, and I thought I was like, you know, the big hotshot, young, handsome youth pastor. And then God was like, you think so? So in that moment, God used Carlos to humble me. So let's give it up for Carlos. Thank you. God can and will humble anyone he pleases. Anyone. It doesn't matter if you're the king of Babylon. It doesn't matter if you're a fresh youth pastor. It doesn't matter if you've been a pastor for 40 years. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian all your life. God can and will humble you at some point in your life. So let's go back to the question we asked in the beginning. What miracle of God is so profound that it causes the wicked to submit? The answer is God's humbling. God's humbling. Only when God humbles a man do they truly know who God is. Only when a man is humbled will they know who the most high ruler is. Doesn't matter if you've been a Christian your whole life. Doesn't matter if you've been wicked your whole life. As soon as you are humbled, we're all drinking the dew of heaven. And that's it. No matter how powerful you are, you are not immune to God's humbling. No matter how many times you've seen and testified of the miracles of God, as Nebuchadnezzar did every time the Hebrew Israelites did something, he was still humbled. I would go as far as to say, unless you have experienced the humbling of God, you cannot truly say that you are a follower of God. This is what separated Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. Remember what we talked about in chapter 1. Nebuchadnezzar, as we read earlier in this chapter, he was flourishing. He was proud. The highest moment in his empire. No one was mightier than him. No one was mightier than his nation. And whatever he wanted, he had it. And he even experienced some of the miracles of God because he brought the Israelites into his court. But Daniel, Daniel lost everything. Daniel lost his nation. He lost the temple. He lost his people. He lost his culture. He lost his friends. He lost his families. And as we learn in chapter 1, he lost his family jewels. He was not having a good time in Babylon. But yet, he still declared the goodness of God. This is what separated Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. Because of this, when Daniel testifies of God, it has that much more authenticity. It has that much more power over Nebuchadnezzar's declarations of God. Nebuchadnezzar's worship was cheap. It was easy. I mean, sometimes it, was, it only happened because Nebuchadnezzar was doing the wrong thing that God had to correct him, that he realized there is a God. Nebuchadnezzar got everything he wanted, never was humbled by God in the, in the past. He only ever saw the goodness of God through the life of the Hebrews. And he would declare the goodness of God when he got his dream, when he got his advisors, even when he got proven wrong at the fiery furnace. He would declare it, but it didn't cost him anything. He was like, oh, oh, there's a God. That's pretty cool. He does cool things. It didn't mean anything to him. There was no cost to it. 
It was cheap. And as King David declared, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. And this is our faith. Our faith should cost us something. So what did it cost Nebuchadnezzar? Well, we read in Daniel chapter 4, verse 27. Daniel is continuing giving the interpretation to the king. And he says, therefore, king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Wipe away your sin by doing righteousness and your wrongdoing by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging in your prosperity. How does Nebuchadnezzar submit to the most high God? By showing mercy to the poor. I found this a little bit interesting. I was like, maybe, I don't know, declare God king, maybe make the Hebrews religion, the religion of Babylon, maybe, I don't know, I thought I had the answer, but God tells Nebuchadnezzar, show mercy to the poor. So I had to go to the commentaries, read up a little bit. Why is it so important? Now, don't get me wrong. We need to show mercy to the poor. The, there, the, there's prophecies throughout the Old Testament about showing mercy to the poor. But why in this moment is there's been wicked kings through Israel, through Babylon, Persia, who didn't show justice to the poor. Why in this moment particularly is, is God causing this king to go mad so that he shows mercy to the poor? Well, most commentary, commentators would align this passage with what Jesus was telling to the rich young ruler. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. What do we learn from this? This test, what is this test that Jesus gave the rich young ruler? What is this test that Daniel is giving Nebuchadnezzar? Well, this is the true test of humility. Are you willing to lose all things in order to please God? Matthew 16, 25 through 26 says, Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? So, let me ask you this question, the hard question. What is it that you have to let go of? Is it a job? Is it a relationship? Is it a promotion, a career path, a career decision? What is it? What is it that God's trying to humble you of? What is it that you're holding on to that God's asking you to let go of? What are you trying to profit from that is causing you to lose your soul? As Nebuchadnezzar, maybe it's driving you mad, it's driving you crazy. Something that God's convicting you of. What is he asking you to let go of? It's hard. I remember I never wanted to go into ministry. Big shocker. I, I, growing up in the church, seeing my dad in ministry, seeing how it, it, my dad's a great pastor. We lived a good life. We were blessed by God, but it wasn't anything I wanted. It wasn't what I would want for my future family. I was a student of science and math. I loved physics. I loved chemistry. I loved all that stuff. I read physics textbooks for fun. I was a nerd. I loved it. And 
So I went through all the processes that you would go through if that was, you know, I, I, I started applying to schools, to programs. I wanted to do ROTC, maybe do Air Force. You know, I'm the only son of my family who's not in the military. So I figured that'd be a good route to go. You can do a lot in the science field. I was really looking forward to it. That was my dream. That was my vision and my goal. But I knew, oh God, I knew that I was called to ministry. I knew it. God had told me. There was nothing that was more clear in my mind that I was called to ministry. But I was like, God, I don't want it. God, I've got my plans. I'm going to go to this college, go to this program. I got a good GPA. I got outstanding physical physique for the military. That looks good in high school, okay? <laughs> I, had, I, I had everything I needed to fulfill my goals and my dreams. And there was no reason why I shouldn't have it. But God called me to ministry. And so all the doors, denied from every college, denied from the ROTC program. Now, I don't want to toot my horn. I had a good GPA. I had everything I needed. Why? I had the recommendations. I did all the interviews. I did all the process. Why? Because God was humbling me. It's hard. It's scary sometimes. It's confusing at moments. Maybe for some of us it might even be dangerous. But I want to go back to something that was said in the dream in Daniel chapter 4, verse 15. It talks about this band of iron and of bronze. Now what is this? The band of iron and bronze. Why is this set around the stump of the cut tree? This is God's protection over Nebuchadnezzar. God is not humbling you just to humiliate you. He is not humbling you just so that he can beat you down. He is not humbling you because he's a bully. He's humbling you because he has something better for you. He's humbling you because he has a future and a hope for you. He will not harm you or cause you to stumble, and he will protect you. The band of iron and the bronze is a symbolization of, of God's protection and favor over Nebuchadnezzar's life, even though he's being cut down, even though he's being humbled, even though all this turmoil is going to happen, God is still protecting him. God has a plan. He's going to humble us. We have to have faith and trust him through the humbling. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. We're going to close with this last passage in Daniel chapter 4. After we get the interpretation, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's like, cool, Daniel, thanks. Go on your merry way. Thank you for the interpretation. Twelve months pass. A year passes. And I guess Nebuchadnezzar forgot about the dream. Forgot about how it made him feel. And he starts, you know, getting some pomp again. Start feeling good about himself. And as soon as he feels that coming up again, it happens. He goes insane. He goes mad. And we pick up the story in Daniel chapter 4, verses 33 through 35. It says, immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. And he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, Raised my, eye, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my reason returned to me. 
And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is everlasting. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one can ward off his hand. We're going to go through seasons of humbling. And the reality of humility is that it's not something we can give ourselves. Right? You can't make yourself more humble. That just makes you more prideful. The only way we become more humble is if the Most High God humbles us. And that means going through trying seasons. That means losing something. That means letting go of a dream, of a vision, of an opportunity, whatever it is. In order to be humbled, it's going to hurt. It has to hurt. It has to be a sacrifice. If it's not, it won't humble us. But we need that. He has a future for us. Not to harm us, but to prosper us. To give us a hope. That's why he does what he does. And no one can ward that off. It's been said before, he loves you too much to keep you where you are. Let's stand to our feet as we close this. We will be subject to his humbling. We all must go through it. Our response to the humbling will be the sign of our righteousness, will be the sign of the Holy Spirit in our life. How will we respond? Will we accept the humbling? Will we lose our lives so we can finally enjoy the riches of his glory? Will we accept it and live out the life the master planner has for us? Or will we continue in our stubborn ways, holding on to that thing that God told us to let go of so long ago? will be hard. It will be a sacrifice. But we know he will always protect us. He will always be with us. What did we learn last week? That he's in the fire with us. That he delivers us from the fire and we do not smell like the smoke. That he's with us through those trying times. He'll be there for us and see us through the other side. When Jesus endured the cross, it said that he did it for the joy set before him. God himself humbled himself so that you and I could be in a right relationship with him. That's our model. So that we would be humbled so that now we could be in right relationship with him. Father God, I pray that you would bring the humbling, oh God. Lord God, that we would accept your word, oh God. We would accept that call. We would accept the life you have for us. We wouldn't hold on to the things you're telling us to let go of, oh God. Give us that resolve, oh God, that Daniel had to not defile himself. Give us that resolve that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had when they faced the fire. That They said, even if I am consumed by that fire, God, I will still praise you. I pray that we praise you through the humbling, oh God, and that your word would have its complete work done in us, oh God. Your word will not return void. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Let's worship.